If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians is in your New Testament, uh, towards the middle of your New Testament. It goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So it's one of the first of Paul's letters. And you can find it also on page 972 if you need a pew Bible. It will also be printed on the screen behind me and in your bulletin this morning as well. We started a new series a couple of weeks ago uh, on the book of Galatians titled, The Gospel Changes Everything. And if you remember, basically one of the things we highlighted a couple of weeks ago, this book is obviously it's written by the Apostle Paul. And one of the most significant things about the context that he's writing and the people that he's writing to, and it's also... Uh, one of the most easiest things to overlook is that Galatians is written to professing Christians. And Paul is writing to clarify the gospel with them and to talk to them about the implications and the application of the gospel and how it works itself out in their lives. And that's really, really important because oftentimes we commonly think, oh, the gospel is for all the people that have never heard of Jesus Uh, And for non-Christians and skeptics and people who uh, need to understand more. uh, But what we learn here is that the gospel is for everyone. It's for Christians. It's for people who've been a Christian for 30 years, their whole life, you could say. And it's also uh, for non-Christians. We've said it this way. It's not just the ABCs of the Christian life. Not just the elementary stuff, and then let me get to the real advanced stuff. Uh, No, it is the advanced stuff, Paul's saying. Uh, It's the A to Z in the Christian life. This morning, we come to chapter 2 in the book of Galatians. So let me read uh, chapter 2 for us. Follow along with me. This is God's word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And to those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he, worked, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask God to come help us this morning through his spirit. Let's pray together. 
Father, um, we need you this morning, and we pray that you would come and be with us. We bring lots of burdens and lots of different things into this room. Some of us this morning are afraid. Some of us are full of doubts. Some of us are excited and glad. Some of us are way too comfortable. Some of us are struggling with pain and betrayal. Lord, some of us have wrong thoughts about you, wrong thoughts about the gospel, wrong thoughts thoughts about ourselves and other people. Would you convince us this morning that we're all the same? The symptoms may differ, but the disease is the same because we are far more broken than we ever uh, imagined. But at the same time, in Jesus, we are far more loved, far more beautiful than we ever thought possible. Show us Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You remember the movie Shawshank Redemption? It's an older movie. You don't remember it or have never seen the movie. Basically, Andy, who's played by Tim Robbins, uh, was put in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And while he's in prison, he becomes really good friends, best friends, with this guy named Red, played by Morgan Freeman. Red, after 40 years of prison, uh, ends up being paroled and. He is struggling to adapt to a life now of freedom. For example, if you've seen the movie, you remember the scene. He's in a grocery store, and he's working, and he's completely free. But he asks permission every single time to go to the restroom. And eventually, his boss looks at him and says, You're free. You can go to the bathroom whenever you need to, Red. Why do I tell you that story? Well, because freedom is easier to proclaim than it is to possess. In other words, there is a huge difference between knowing that you're free and having head knowledge and proclaiming freedom. There's a difference between that and actually experience freedom freedom, and living out freedom in your daily life. And friends, that's exactly what is at stake with every single one of us in this room this morning. Talking about the freedom of the gospel is one thing. But living the freedom of the gospel and experiencing the freedom of the gospel is another. In other words, it is possible for you to believe the gospel freedom that Paul proclaims and yet still live like a slave. And yet still live like a prisoner. And Paul will have none of it. (laughs) Those are fighting words for the Apostle Paul. And in fact, we could say that's really what the whole book of Galatians is about. Paul wants us, he wants them in Galatia, but he wants us in 2018 to experience and actually live out the gospel freedom that is proclaimed in the Bible and by Jesus. And this is why... He's going to this power meeting. This is why he's going to Jerusalem for this power meeting with the Jerusalem apostles, these pillars of the church. He's going because he's fighting for gospel freedom. And so the question that we're going to look at this morning is how can we be a people 
How can we be a church that doesn't just proclaim the gospel and talk about the gospel, but we are a people that actually experiences the gospel in our day-to-day lives? How does that happen? Well, for that to happen, we see three things that we must understand in this passage. We must understand, number one, the meaning of gospel freedom. Secondly, we must understand the threat to gospel freedom. And then lastly, we'll look at the result or the fruit of gospel freedom. Let's look at uh, number one, our first point, the meaning of gospel freedom. Look at verses three through four. But even Titus, by the way, you heard circumcision or uncircumcision mentioned about a billion times. That's an exaggeration, but it was mentioned a lot. I feel like I said it quite often. What is going on with this idea of circumcision? Verses three and four, not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. Well, remember, it gets into the context, and this is very important for us to understand what is going on here to really understand the book of Galatians. Remember, these false teachers, these Christian Jewish missionaries, were coming into the church of Galatia. Paul had planted these churches a year prior. And a year later, after Paul's gone, because Paul's strategy was to plant churches, tell them about Jesus, get the church up and running, and then he would go to the next place and preach the gospel, and get a church up and running, and do it all over again. Well, these Jewish Christian missionaries were coming in to the church, and they were saying, Paul's great, we love Paul, but he's not telling you the whole story. Yes, you need Jesus, but you also need circumcision and obedience to the law if you're really going to be a Christian and do what we've been doing for thousands of years. That's what they're preaching. They're preaching a gospel, not of Jesus plus nothing, but of Jesus plus circumcision and obedience to the law. And so let me, uh, let's talk about what is going on here. Circumcision, it's important to understand, it wasn't the only thing. It didn't cover it all. Circumcision was shorthand for the entire ceremonial law of the Old Testament. And so to really understand the freedom that Paul is fighting for, we've got to understand to some degree the ceremonial law. What is the ceremonial law? Well, it was referred to as the clean laws. And the clean laws were things having to do with food that you could eat, having to do with the way you dressed and daily practices of your life that would make you ritually clean, Accept, acceptable to God in temple worship. And so think about, under that's what the false teachers were proclaiming. And under that system, the Gentiles, the Galatians, and Titus were considered unfit and unable and unacceptable for temple worship of God. And the ceremonial law served two practical purposes. One, they were boundary markers that kept the Jews, uh, boundary markers, and kept the Jews a distinct group from the pagan nations around them. But the ceremonial law also taught that God was holy and they were not. And that in order to go before God and be acceptable, that they had to be clean. And here's what's interesting about that. You could pay careful attention to your life. You could have the best week obeying the clean laws that you've ever had. And when you go to the temple, you know what happens? No matter how good you were that week, 
No matter how many clean laws that you had kept, a priest still had to go in on your behalf and to kill an animal. You still needed the shedding of blood. You still needed someone to die in your place. And you know why? Because the clean laws and the ceremonial law was shouting that you need a savior. The clean laws were shouting that you cannot save yourself no matter how good you are. The clean laws and the ceremonial law says that you can never clean yourself up enough to come before a holy God. And you see, that is the gospel that they were that the, the gospel that they were agreeing on in this meeting in Jerusalem in Galatians chapter two was not that. In Galatians chapter two, they came out agreeing on this that Jesus came into the world and lived the life that you couldn't live because of your sin. That he obeyed the ceremonial law in your place. That Jesus was clean for you. They also agreed that Jesus died the death that you deserved. For your sin. And that he was the sacrifice. He was the perfect and final sacrifice. And when you have faith in him. Then you are in God's presence. And you are completely acceptable. And completely loved. And so then the question is, Jason, okay, so what do we do about all these crazy ceremonial laws that we see in the New Testament? All these clean laws that we see as you read the New Testament and the Gospels. You know what you do? Absolutely nothing. You don't lift a finger to obey any of them because they all pointed to Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled all of them for you. Because he loves you. You know, we've been watching, Susie and I, I've mentioned this before, but we're big fans of This Is Us. And don't worry, if you're a watcher of This Is Us, this is not a spoiler on what happens to Jack. But a few weeks ago, there was this amazing scene. A very powerful scene between Jack, who is the father, and his daughter, Kate. And he calls her Katie Girl. And Kate struggles with body image. She struggles with her weight. Uh, And she's a teenager, and she starts to hate the way she looks. She doesn't think she's beautiful. In fact, she starts to dislike the fact that her father always tells her that she is beautiful. She tells him to quit saying that. Kate's also a singer, and she's uh, trying to get into college and get a scholarship, and so she has to send in an audition tape. And her father, Jack, wants to video her singing. Uh, he wants to, 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 video, to video it, but she refuses it because she hates the way she looks. So she's in her room singing, and her father takes the video, her back's to the door, and her father grabs the video camera and comes and secretly starts filming her as she's singing. She finally realizes that he is there, and she turns around, and she gets furious, and he apologizes for that. And then later, She goes and she grabs the tape. And she starts watching this tape of her singing. And what she notices is that you can see the reflection of her father as he's videoing her in the mirror. And she sees the look on his face. And it's a look of delight. 
It's a look of a father adoring his daughter and thinking that she is the best thing in the world. He has a smile from ear to ear. And she watches that and she sees how her father sees her. And it changes her. And she watches the tape over and over again. And then she goes to her father and she says, never stop telling me that I'm beautiful. Because you see, she believed it to be true when she saw how her father really looked at her. Friends, the freedom of the gospel means that the verdict is in on you. Because of Jesus, the verdict is in on you. You no longer have to look for the smiles from the world and from relationships and from body image and popularity and from your success at work. Because in the only eyes that really matter, the eyes of God, you're beautiful and you're clean. Think about the passage. And you're accepted and you're successful. And friends, if that gets a hold of your heart, we won't have to worry about the gospel changing the way we experience life. If that gets a hold of your heart, we will go from people who not just think about the gospel and know all the, uh, the info of the gospel, we will go from to people who actually live it out and experience it in our daily lives. Secondly, Paul's laid out the meaning of the gospel, okay? So Paul's told us all this circumcision talk and what he's getting at in the book of Galatians. But secondly, Paul not only tells us the meaning, he tells us the threat to the gospel freedom. So what do you think the biggest threat is this morning to gospel freedom? Think about that question. What do you think this morning, what would you say is the biggest threat to gospel freedom? Perhaps you would say um, religious terrorists. They're the biggest threat. Maybe you would say the atheist at your workplace or who lives in your neighborhood who hates the gospel and hates you. Or maybe you would say the college professor who's trying to tear down the faith of our children and college students. Maybe that's what you would say. You know what the biggest threat to gospel freedom is in the world? The greatest threat to gospel freedom is in this room this morning. The greatest threat to gospel freedom is sitting in this room. It's not out there. That's what we think. It's in here, in the church. How do I know? Look at verse 4. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in, spied out our freedom that we have in Jesus so that they might bring us back into slavery. Did you notice? False, not outsiders, not false enemies or false pagans, false brothers. The freedom stealers are inside the very community that are proclaiming the gospel of freedom. They didn't show up with a pitchfork and horns at the front door saying, how can I lead these people back into slavery? No. Look at the language Paul uses here. You know the spy movies? There's always a mole on the inside. You know that? 
Look at how Paul talks about it. Our opponents, the opposition. He uses espionage language secretly. Spy out. Slipped in. To take away the freedom. And here's the thing, and Martin mentioned it last week. They thought of themselves as true brothers. They thought they were right. But they were very sneaky, Paul says. And what does Paul have to think about these false brothers? Fill in everything we talked about from chapter 1. Remember, he says, "Let not once but twice, let them be accursed. Let them go to hell. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 5, look at what he says. We did not yield for them even for a moment. We didn't give them an inch. We didn't give them the time of day. And I don't have time to get into all of this right at this very moment, but I want you to think about this. Think about how Paul and Jesus talk about their enemies outside the church in other books of the Bible. Paul in Romans chapter 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Think about Jesus. Turn the other cheek. Think about that, but also think about how Jesus talked about the Pharisees. You see the contrast? When someone is inside the church and an enemy of the gospel inside the church, let them be accursed. But if they're outside the church and they're an enemy, love them and bless them. Boy. Mm. And so then the question becomes, how in the world can some community that's founded on gospel freedom actually want to take away the very freedom that they're talking about? Why would anyone be opposed to the gospel of freedom? That sounds like incredible news. Two reasons. One is, and us included, people have a real hard time with grace. We have a very hard time with a free gift, don't we? Because we are so prideful. We want to say we've done something to earn it. We want to say in some way, shape, or form that we have contributed to our salvation. We want to say we've done something. And that's why when you ask people about their Christian life, the first thing they say oftentimes is not about Jesus and the gospel and the grace he's shown. You know what what we go to almost instantly? Let me tell you what I'm doing. Let me tell you what I've done. Tell you how many times I've shared my faith this week. Let me tell you about how many, how many books I've read. Second reason, though, is that true freedom is scary. True freedom is threatening and it's dangerous because it threatens the status quo, doesn't it? Think about what happens. Look all throughout the history of the world When people experience true freedom, what happens? Well, someone in power rises up to crush it. They rise up and bring the law and they drop the hammer so that they can contain it and so that they can stop it. The response is always, just look, when things start getting out of hand or things start getting a little shaky, control or heavy-handedness comes in. Friends, gospel freedom and gospel ministry is messy. And if you don't think it's messy, why 15 years 
after Jesus had died and was resurrected, are they, the apostles, I think that's probably the most healthy church to ever be around. They're having a meeting, meeting about what gospel freedom looks like. Gospel freedom is messy. And we like control. And we like things to be manageable, to be neat and clean. Because the law and control gives us some sense that we are managing things. You see, these false brothers, they probably had good motives. They were just wanting to preserve the traditions of Judaism. They were, uh, wanted to make sure that these freedom that these Gentiles were experiencing didn't go too far and to turn into loose living. And they were putting up guardrails. And they said, we should put up these guardrails and make sure people are really sincere and committed Christians. Well, maybe they were. But you know what Paul said? He said it was no gospel at all. That it was a drop of poison. And that suddenly when you add something, it turns the freedom of the gospel into slavery. And so what do we learn here as far as application at this point? Well, you need to learn, what we've learned is that you need and I need to be prepared to fight for gospel freedom right here in this very room. Not out there, in here. And sadly, when people think about the church, they often do not immediately think freedom. Again, that they often don't think freedom is the first thing I think of with the church. Oftentimes, people think that's the last place I can be free. You probably know people that would say that. That's the last place that I'm free to struggle with who I am and my brokenness and my sin and my shortcomings. And listen, ever so slightly, we can have the best of motives, but we add something to Jesus ever so slightly to set the real Christians apart. We do that. We do that ever so subtly when we communicate things as if even inside of our hearts, well, you're a real Christian, and you'll know you're a real Christian if, fill in the blank. And whatever it is that you fill in the blank with, that's what you've added to the gospel. You're a real Christian if you have a quiet time, if you dress a certain way, or if you vote a certain way, or talk a certain way, or you're a real Christian when you do certain things, when you clean your act up. And we add when we communicate that cleaning up your act or abstaining or doing certain things, that you must do those in order for God to accept you and love you. And listen, I totally get it. Are there real dangers to freedom? Absolutely they are. But what we do is we try to head off those dangers and we end up adding ever so slightly imposing conditions on God's love for other people. And when we do that, we destroy the gospel completely. Insert everything from chapter 1. You rip the goodness right out of the good news. Lastly and briefly, the result of gospel freedom. And th- this is important. The result of gospel freedom is unity. How do we see that? Look at verses 1 and 2. So Paul goes up to Jerusalem, and I think this is important to explain. Paul's not going up to Jerusalem to meet with these uh, apostles and these pillars of the church because he's scared he's got the gospel wrong. No, fill in everything from chapter 1. He got the gospel. It's not something he came up with. It was revelation from God himself. 
He's going, that's not why he's going to say, hey, I think I might have had this wrong. I need to go make sure I've got this right. That's not why he's going. He's going because these false brothers are threatening the fruitfulness of his ministry. Everything that he has done would be completely undone if the Jerusalem apostles said that they were right or even allowed it to go on. Paul's afraid of two Christianities coming out of this meeting. One culturally defined and one absolutely free. A Gentile church and a a Jewish church. And thank the Lord that did not happen. The more I study this, the more Galatians chapter 2 is a huge passage in the Bible. That didn't happen. How do we know? Look at verse 5. We didn't yield even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for who? You. For us. The leaders didn't insist that Titus be circumcised. They gave him the right hand to fellowship. And that was a way of the leader saying that we agree with Paul. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. It was a way of them uh, by uh, not circumcising Titus. It was proof that they had accepted Paul's ministry. That's why Paul says in verse 6, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to my message. And what we see here is a remarkable unity in the midst of diversity. How so? Two things. First, notice the false brothers were saying that not all Jewish people were Christians. But if you were a Christian, then you needed to become Jewish. That's what they were saying. And Galatians chapter 2 says, no. Galatians chapter 2 says gospel unity does not mean gospel sameness. Galatians chapter 2 says that the gospel's for all cultures. It's for all people. And that there's not one culture that has precedent over any other in the Christian faith. The gospel relativizes your background. The gospel comes and says it doesn't matter how you grew up anymore. It comes and says that people from wildly different backgrounds, people from different languages and cultures and customs and political parties can all come together under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, can come together under one gospel. Now, does that mean that your background dissolves in Christ? Absolutely not. Doesn't mean you don't, it it takes away how you grew up and your nationality and those kinds of things, but what the gospel does is it demotes it. Suddenly everything, even your background and your culture begins to be judged by the gospel. So what this shows us is that it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. The gospel is for everyone. But secondly, it also tells us the last application. And listen, I don't even have time to get to verse 10. We could spend... Three weeks on verse 10. Remember the poor. That sounds so odd. But boy, we could spend a lot of time, but you can't say everything. And if you try, you'll say nothing. So I'm sorry. But I think verses 7 through 9 are amazing. Because Peter, James, and John acknowledge that there is one gospel, that it's unchanging, but they also gave space for different styles and strategies. It's really brilliant in chapter 2 of Galatians because the leaders not only recognize these differences, but they also endorse it as a ministry strategy. 
They also basically are saying that God works in different ways through different types of people. And here's why that's good news. is that you don't all have to be the same. We don't all have to be the same. We don't all have to have the same heart for the same ministries and have the same gifts and have the heart for the same group of people. That God gives us different passions and different gifts to accomplish his purposes in the world. And maybe you say, well, Jason, I, okay, I get that, but you don't know who I am and what I've done. There's no way God can use me. And maybe I don't know who you are and what you've done, but I know who Paul and I know who Peter are and I know what they did. And God used them in a big way. Think about Paul, religious terrorist, would endorse the killing of Christians. And Peter was a sellout. So right here in this meeting, we have a sellout and a former religious terrorist. And God used them in a real big way. And so what does that mean? It means you don't have to be perfect and have a perfect story and a perfect background in order for God to use you. You don't have to be a spiritual rock star to be used in the kingdom of God because God uses people from all different stories and all different backgrounds and passions and skills and abilities and strengths and weaknesses to accomplish his purposes in the world. But you see, the gospel mission does provide some unity, spiritually speaking. We're all different. But the unifying thing of it all is that the gospel says that we're weak and that God is strong. When we do gospel mission as they are being sent out to do, we don't go in our own strength. We go in the power of another. And that's what Paul's been saying the whole whole time in Galatians, that the power's not in, in me, in the messenger. It's in the message. Romans 1 verse 16, the gospel, not the messenger, is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. I have a friend of mine, I'll close with this, who's a pastor at Lookout Mountain Press, Brian Salter. He was part of my installation service, and he's been there for a number of years. And he t- tells this story about when he first uh, got there, and he was really young in the ministry, and he was called to a very volatile ministry situation. I, I can't go into the details, but... Uh, just know that it was dangerous, it was volatile, it was difficult. And so he goes down to the head pastor, Joe Novenson's office, and he says, Joe, I have no idea what to do. I need some advice. And he's expecting Joe to say, take a gun, call the police, or at least take someone really big and strong with you. And he says, Joe looked at him and said these words, declare bankruptcy, And show up. Friends, no matter what our call is, no matter what your background and gifts and story is, the call to gospel ministry is the same. We are called to declare bankruptcy and show up wherever it is that God is calling us. We are called to go not in our own strength, but in the power of another. And so how can we be a people? How can we be a church that not only knows the gospel and proclaims the gospel, but actually experiences the gospel and lives it out? And we've got to understand the meaning of the gospel. We've got to know the threat to the gospel, and we've got to know the fruit of the gospel. May God make faith church a place of gospel freedom. Let's pray.
Father, we confess that we need this gospel freedom. That there's something in us that pushes back against it because we are deeply addicted to our own righteousness. We hear this gospel and we think that it's too good to be true. And so would you take this gospel and soften our hearts with it and bear the fruit of keeping with this freedom that we've learned about, that we have in Jesus. Help us to be on guard against freedom stealers around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.